I'm so sorry to be this person and to start this episode this way, but Mercury is in retrograde and maybe it's the planets and the stars. Maybe it's because I'm mentally ill. I don't know, but I'm feeling it today and I've like tried to record the first like minute of this episode a gazillion times and I'm not gonna try and record it anymore this is it this is what we're doing I'm letting like the perfectionism go I've been calling myself this is tangential but I mean listen May is AAPI history month but it's also mental health awareness month so I'm just gonna sprinkle this in the new title or the new era, quote unquote, that I would say I'm in right now is my recovering perfectionist era. For example, I went to a ballet class for the first time in literally three years last night because, and I just told myself, you're going to be bad. It's going to suck. Your leg isn't going to be as high in Batmas as it used to be. Adagio is going to be hell but you're going to have fun <laughs> or you're going to try to and you're going to do it. And it was great. Once I accepted that, I'm not as talented as I used to be. It was totally fine. Anyways, my recovering perfectionist era. That's what we're in. Another episode at some point will be dedicated to perfectionism and the hell that it has wreaked on my life. But I digress. Um, hi, we're here. Eight million gazillion times later. Hi, I'm Alexander Reagan. I'm your um somewhat frantic host of the Model Student Podcast, but don't worry. <laughs> the rest of this episode will be organized. I have my notes. I have my sources. I'm ready to go. Um, if you didn't know, May is Asian American Pacific Islander History Month, and just like I did in February for Black History Month, I wanted to um, do due diligence and take some time to acknowledge um, important people within the industry, important AAPI um, people within the industry. And today we'll be learning about Anna Mae Wong, who was really the first famous Chinese American actress. Um, we'll be talking about her in just a minute. But before we get into um, her and her legacy, I wanted to talk about how AAPI Heritage Month even became to be. And we have a lovely woman named Jeannie Chu to thank for it. She was a former Capitol Hill um, like congressional staffer. And she had the idea in mind, um, I guess it says originally in the 70s. And if you recall, like in the 70s, um, 1976 was when Black History Month kind of like got signed into I don't know if it's like law is the correct terminology but kind of became like official um, by President Ford but prior to 1976 Black History Month or Black History had been starting to be taught in universities and celebrated anyways I have if you want to learn all about that I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the first episode um, of February. If not, um, you can learn all about it over at Lost Two Underscores History. But, anyways, nonetheless, so similar to how um, Black History had kind of been celebrating a long while before it was like cemented and official. Same thing with um, Asian American history. Actually, it was 
let me look up their names really quick. It was an iconic couple. Um, Yuji Ishioku, I think is how you say his last name, and Emma G. And while they were students, they were graduate students at Berkeley, and they had created an organization um, called Asian American Political Alliance, AAPA for short, in 1968. And their Emma G. and Yoji Ishioku were the first people to really coin the phrase Asian American, or at least the first like people who had public use of that phrase. Um, and they had kind of created that term or I, I mean created I'm they're credited for creating it because they needed a term that would bring everyone together. Um, and that did the trick. So anyways, prior to Jeannie Ju, we had Emma G and Yoji Ishioku who in 1968 had started um, kind of creating a movement of Asian American recognition, of celebration, of identity. And then it was in the 70s that Jeannie Ju had approached um, Horton about having a AAPI History Month. And Horton is, he was a congressman, his name is Frank Horton. But it wasn't until 1992 um that Frank Horton introduced the bill that called for me to get the designation of being AAPI history. And so that's kind of how we got here. I I can say that um, AAPI history or history month wasn't really anything that I celebrated in school growing up. I graduated high school in 2018. I graduated college in 2021. Um, I mean, I was studying psychology, writing rhetoric and modern dance. So, you know, once you get to university, your studies are kind of more specific. But in my lower education, it wasn't ever really brought up. I remember very like vaguely learning about Chinese dynasties in my AP um, world history class. But otherwise, I don't remember learning about um any asian americans or pacific islanders which is unfortunate but so that's a brief history on it kind of how we got here um but may fun fact may was chosen because it um commemorates um the migration of first immigrants from japan to the united states which occurred on may 7th 1843 and then it also, likewise, celebrates um, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which had over 20,000 Asian immigrants, which occurred on May 10th in 1869. Um, anyways, if you want to learn more about like the whole history of the process of creating an Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I encourage you to do your own research, but I just kind of wanted to give a brief um, introduction. And I didn't know this until very recently, um, but each year there's a different theme, similar to how Black History has a different theme, how Women's History Month has um, a different theme each year. For Women's History, this year it was... um, about like caretakers (laughs) I can't remember exactly what it was but kind of honoring the healing that women do um for 
Black History Month this year was all about wellness and taking care, so kind of same vibes. And actually, this year for AAPI, it's not really on the wellness grind, but kind of. Um, The theme is Advancing Leaders Through Collaboration. This theme was decided by Federal Asian Pacific American Council, and they described the theme as Collaboration involves two or more individuals, groups, or organizations actively working together to accomplish a task or achieve a goal. Collaboration at its core requires leadership. Collaboration improves team dynamics, enhances problem solving, leading to increased innovation, process efficiency, improved communication, and ultimately overall success. So that's the theme. Again, if you want to learn more, I highly encourage you to do your own research. Um... Or as always, follow Atlas History. It's kind of one of my main projects that I work on and um, something that I really care about. But now we will finally learn about Miss um, Anna Mae Wong. So she's kind of an icon. <laughs> like she's definitely was, you know, all the words that we use to describe like the first person of a marginalized community to do something she was a trailblazer she was a pioneer um she was unwilling to be bound by the boundaries or parameters that other people had set for her her story is one that's noted for being one of um determination that can inspire all of us who want to see images of people of color reflected back to them on screen so she was born, Miss Wong, was born in um, Los Angeles, California on January 3rd of 1905. Her name, which was also spelled Wong Lee Song, translates um, literally to Frosted Yellow Willows, but it's also been interpreted as second daughter, Yellow Butterfly. And she was, she had seven siblings and she was the second born, second oldest um, but her family gave her the English language name Anime. She was born on a Flower Street in downtown LA, which um, was an integrated neighborhood that had mostly Irish and um, German people with one block of Chinatown. And on that one block of Chinatown, her father ran um, a laundry shop. Her mother's career wasn't listed, so I'm not quite sure what she did. But fun fact, and I thought this was kind of cool, She, one of her cousins was a cinematographer and his name was James Wong Hao, but he doesn't really come up in her story very much, but I thought it was cool that um, she had another family member in the business, so to speak. Um, throughout her adolescence, she went to a Chinese language school in Chinatown, and as the story always goes, I feel like for people in the industries, especially like actresses, um, it's noted that she would skip school to watch film shoots in her neighborhood because she lived in L.A. Um, I mean, if you've been to L.A., you know how it... I mean, it's like an industry city for sure. Anyways, um, she made... She also worked for her dad's laundry shop and she would do the deliveries. And in doing so, she would make tips. And with those tips, it's a noted... I don't know why I was about to say it's alleged as if like this is all made up. It's, I mean, from the sources I saw that seemed credible. This is how um, her biography goes. But with those tip money, the tip money, she would spend it going to the movies. And then when she was about nine years old, she began 
kind of pestering <laughs> the filmmakers that she would see like on sets for parts and because of that behavior she got the nickname ccc which abbreviates or is the abbreviation for curious chinese child um fast forward to her high school years there's not much noted about middle school but she attended hollywood high school where she became a photographer's model um and she throughout this time actually worked as an extra in many movies while still going to school but she dropped out of high school um, in 1921 to become an actress full-time and it worked out for her <laughs> that same year she had her or land I don't know if it was her first role but she landed the role as Toiling's wife in the film Bits of Life and then at 17 so that was her first role but it wasn't her first leading role in the next year in 1922 she landed her first leading role in The Toll of the Sea and that's one of her most um, like famous films, most recognizable films, I suppose is another word for that. But um, The Toll of the Sea was a silent version of a movie called Madame Butterfly. And it was one of the movies that was made in color. So unfortunately, <laughs> um, like on every account that I read or every... Um, video that I watched about her the racism of her time like a very overt racism of her time kept getting brought up and it's really an inescapable part of her story um and we gotta talk about it we gotta talk about it um she so at the time like Again, so she was a teenager, like, in the 1920s, um, and it was around that time that, I mean, like, listen, Jim Crow hadn't happened yet, like, we hadn't had, um, like, there was really no civil major that I know of, at least, civil rights movements, like, when I think of civil rights and social justice, I think about those happening more in, like, starting in like the 40s and 50s like I'm not saying there weren't protesters obviously like that doesn't excuse the racism of the time I just anyways what I'm trying to say I'm trying to contextualize is that when Anna Mae Wong was a teenager like that was a time when blackface was okay um not okay but like normalized and people would do it um it was the same time that they would cast white women um to play Asian women and they would do yellow face and, um, it's just not good. Like, I don't, I don't know why I'm trying to, like, fill in the blanks anymore. Like, point value, it was just not good. Um, and so, like, let's just keep in mind that that's the environment that Anna was, like, stepping into or trying to create space for herself into. Um, and she was rejected for a lot of roles what's like crazy about it is a lot of these roles were like for Asian women but they weren't really for Asian women they were for white women doing yellow face and so when Wong would audition for these roles when Anna would um she would get rejected because she didn't fit the white 
imagined ideal for an Asian woman. Um, she, as so many people of color are used to, were called exotic. Um, she, it's noted that she had an alien presence, <laughs> despite her American citizenship. Um, she noted in a memoir um, that was published in 1926, just five years after she really got into the film industry, she said, a lot of people, when they first meet me, are surprised that I speak and write English without difficulty, but why shouldn't I? I was born right here in Los Angeles and went to the public schools here. I speak English without any accent at all, but my parents complain that the same cannot be said of my Chinese. Although I have gone to Chinese schools and always talked to my father and mother in our native tongue, it is said that I speak Chinese with an English accent. Um... So back to 1922, um, that was the year that The Toll of the Sea premiered, which was really the film that made Anna Mae Wong a breakout star as much as a Chinese-American woman could be in those days. Um, there was definitely like a ceiling to how far she could go. And as will learn as this episode progresses she definitely broke through that ceiling and um made it so other people could as well but um after that movie she was considered marketable and a commodity in hollywood and she was the number one choice allegedly when and and i say allegedly because i don't know after like after anna came into hollywood if yellow face was like still a practice I'm sure it was like I don't think it like disappeared because they're like ah yes we finally have our one like Asian American (laughs) now like let's like let's get rid of the yellow face paint you guys like we're good now um but it's noted that she was the number one actress and I would argue maybe only um accepted Chinese American actress when a young Asian female part had to be cast. Um, But even within that, like, there is a condition in that the scripts which called for a lead um, Asian character were very few and far between. So instead of becoming this leading woman, she was... um, not forced to be a co-star because like co-starring in film is like still a major deal like I'm not trying to like if you're in any Hollywood production that's a big deal I'm not trying to like belittle it and also for this time even for her to be a co-star or to be on the screen at all was such an accomplishment um so that's not to dismiss that but I digress I digress I tend to get myself in like a web of like thoughts like I have eight different trains of thoughts going at once and I think I just overcomplicate it um I hope you're following me thank you for listening so as co-star she was able to have supporting roles such as um drifting which was a 1923 melodrama that same year she was in a western called thundering dawn or at least Drifting and Thundering Dawn premiered in 1923. I'm not sure what year like production was. Um, but what's interesting and something that I wanted to know is I think 
the way that I'm trying to be careful with my words here. I think the way that race was regarded in the 20s and still even today in the 20s you see it more in overt actions today you see it in implicit and implicitcy and in microaggressions but I think with race what I'm trying to say is there's always been the need to want to categorize people to put them in boxes when I'm filling out um forms that call for my race I mark black and white and or if I can I'll click other (laughs) very rarely is there a biracial multiracial box that's only actually happened twice to me in all my 22 years of living I digress and then when it comes to ethnicity I press Hispanic because I'm Dominican um but I just think it's I think especially in the 20s there was like this want to like have all these separate boxes for people to check um but then there wasn't really the respect to take the time to understand all of the different groups that can exist within that box so while I click black it's because I am biracial I have a black father but another person who clicks black might be from Africa or might be from France or do you know what I mean like it's but I think and I think part of you know that was what was kind of tricky clicking these boxes is like it would say it used to say African-American and there wasn't really like a black um box and it's like I'm not African-American but like I'm not just white and now obviously there's a black box but why I bring that up is because like there are so many black people who aren't from Africa but prior to that like semantic switch they didn't there wasn't space for them (laughs) to be like categorized or in a box and the reason why I'm saying this and like kind of giving personal examples so it doesn't sound like I'm just pulling something out of thin air is because in Anna Mae Wong's time I think when people saw someone who wasn't Caucasian, I mean, with Asians, it's like, okay, they're Asian with brown or black people. It's like, okay, you're brown and black, but there's, again, so many different cultures and communities within that. But um, the reason why I bring this all up is because Anna Mae Wong was ultimately a person of color. She was able to be cast in roles that didn't call for her ethnicity but she was able to be um hired for because again she was seen as quote exotic and alien and it's like yeah well you're a person of color you're not white like you can play an indigenous person you can play native american she played a um native alaskan which the term that they used then was eskimo in the 1924 film the alaskan she played appeared as a tiger lily in um a chief of the indians um which was like the prestigious production of peter pan which also came out in 1924 
And I know that's, again, somewhat tangential, but I just think, I mean, I don't know. Listen, it's like, I think, I think now we're finally at a place where it's like, if a rule calls for a certain ethnicity or race, you should arguably cast that, a person of that ethnicity or race. I talked to a lot of my friends about acting about this and I'll have them on eventually for a whole episode about it and talking about casting and roles and but I just wanted to bring that up because I thought it was interesting that she wasn't able to get necessarily all of the um Asian roles because white people were still doing yellow face instead of just hiring actual um Asians for the roles but she did have this opportunity to play um, indigenous people because she was lumped in this category of other, literally other, like how I click other when I'm required to distinguish my race on a form. So actually, interestingly enough, um, there was a lovely woman named Minor Loy who was a white woman who I'm sure was just a star, but she continued to be cast in the 20s well throughout the 40s um, for Asian leads. And I wanted to kind of just like circle back to that initial thought of um, Anna not being able to get lead roles. And when there were Asian lead roles, it often went to Minor Loy, who again, I'm sure was a nice woman. Um, not trying to pit two queens against each other here. I suppose I think it's a little funny that they were not casting a, at that point, well-known, talented, and beautiful Asian woman, Anna Mae Wong. Um, draw your own conclusions on that. I digress. In turn, though, as I mentioned, Anna um, kind of filled in the supporting roles where she could, but she kind of had a typecast, and that typecast, she played a lot of salacious roles, for lack of a better word. Um, One source cited that she played murderous vamps who often reap the wages of their sin by being raped. It was a demeaning apprenticeship. And these weren't the roles that Anna necessarily was aspiring to. Again, I think it's for the sake of like being a pioneer and opening the store to other Asian women. Um, great that she was able to even be on the screen, but again, there are course for conditions. She wanted to play modern American women all throughout her career, it's noted. But again, because of the, call it conditions, call it racism of the time, she wasn't able to in America. She said, um, actually, like, <laughs> she told the journalist Doris Mackey, I was so tired of the parts I had to play. Why is it that the screen Chinese is always a villain and so crude? a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass. And so she moved to um, Europe, actually, to escape 
the typecast that she was bound to. Um, so she moved in 1928. She packed her bags, went to Europe, and this is where her international career began. Um, she, while she was in Europe, was able to be in films, do some play work. She also could sing and dance. So in 1934, she went on a European tour, again, singing, dancing, acting, um, in cities large and small from Madrid to little towns in Sweden. In 1937, and I just love this, she tried out for a leading role in The Good Earth and didn't make it. So she decided after a rejection to make a movie of her own. And in her film, she went to, and this was her one and only trip to China, and she documented her experience like a vlogger (laughs) before vlogging was even a thing. Ahead of her time in so many ways. Um, But it was a short film, and I'm not sure how long it ran for actually, but it again followed her around her travels, um, doing numerous activities, um, and included like like I mentioned earlier, Wong didn't she notes that she didn't really have a good Chinese accent. Um, despite having Chinese parents and going to Chinese school, she obviously like was born and raised in the United States, so she had American accent. Um anyway, so there were impersonators who taught her how to like enact female Chinese roles, um, like perfecting the accent. She also took a trip to the Western Hills and she also went to um, her family's ancestral village. So this is also cool for a number of reasons. One, just the coolest, like just kind of the fine, I'll do it myself attitude. Like I just... I think there's something to be said about doing things in spite and spite is so incredibly motivating like and I just think it was so cool that after and this wasn't like her first rejection right in a leading role it was like she had been trying and trying for leading roles and when she got supporting roles she had a typecast that she wasn't happy with and rightfully so like she wasn't being a diva by any means um and so I just love how you know 15 years into the industry she decided to make her own documentary and it was cool especially because at that time um I mean this is prior to the 40s prior to the 50s there weren't there were a few prominent um women directors in Hollywood but it was they could all be counted on one hand her documentary though I'm not sure if there was like a premiere at the time that she maybe like hosted with family and friends. It's noted that it aired um, two decades later. So that's kind of, well, let me fast forward a little bit actually. Um, Just kind of give you like her quick credentials. So in her 56 years alive, she was able to have 64 credits as an actress um, again, Toll of the Sea, which was th- her first like big or like role that kind of launched her career in 1922 is one that she's known for, as well as um, Piccadilly, I think is how you pronounce that, which was a 1929 film, um, as well as the 1934 film Chu Chai Chu Chow and the 1937 film Daughter of Shanghai. Um 
I just kind of like that's kind of the chronology of her career. She died on February 2nd of 1961 in Santa Monica, California. So eventually after her European run, she did return back to um, the United States. And like I said, she passed away when she was only 56 years old. I think what's so remarkable about Anna's career is there really wasn't space for her. Like I said, or at least I think I said, I certainly thought it, um, like representation was not, that wasn't even like, there was no mention of inclusivity representation, the way that we have it today. Um, like I'm sure obviously people then wanted representation, but it wasn't like, how it is in mainstream conversation right but despite that um she was Anna was able to become a global celebrity and there's a quote from a Paramount executive who his name is AC Lyles which hell of a name but he says she earned her position the hard way and that's why she survived as long as she did she came into a community that wasn't striving for let's find a Chinese let's find a Chinese lady and make her a star Hannah Mae Wong created a desire for Paramount to have a Chinese leading lady. She did it herself. And I her legacy is still alive today. I think what's cool, I say that questioning because her legacy is alive whether or not we know it. I didn't know about Anna Mae Wong until um, very recently. But it's because of her that we have actresses today like Lucy Liu, for example, who actually dedicated her Hollywood Walk of Fame speech to her. Um, And, you know, I mean, obviously it's Anna had at the very least influence for like there's a reason why we don't see yellow face on screen anymore, right? Um, and even actually as recent as this month, she was honored as Turner Classic Movie Star of the Month. Um, but some other fun facts about Anna that I wanted to share, um, is that she donated her salary from two of her films, Bomb Over Burma, which was 1942, and Lady from Chung Chi, Chung Chi, sorry, not, I almost started saying Chung Chi, uh, Legend of the Ten Rings, not that movie, Lady from Chung King, which also was 1942, and she donated it to what was then the United China Relief. She also spoke French and German, as long with, um, obviously English and Chinese, she was known for, and this is the final fun fact I'll share, she was known for taking everyday items and making them a part of her wardrobe or clothing as like accessories. And really why I wanted to share her legacy other than she did disrupt what Hollywood was to make it what it is that what we what Hollywood is to us now today. Um, she's noted for being one of the first 20th century modern day independent women and I think that's apparent in the way that she just went for things and didn't let any didn't let like I know gatekeeping is like I say it jokingly all the time but like in the true sense of the word like didn't let gatekeeping or 
um, she wasn't, she didn't let herself be limited by the limitations and restrictions that other people had wanted for her. Um, she even, I forgot to mention this earlier, but she actually had, she created her own production company, um, in 1924 prior to her move to England but um and unfortunately was shut down um after her business partner ended up being shady uh for lack of a better reason but um she had started the production company so she can make films about her own culture and ultimately she was able to do that when she had um her own documentary that she made herself made for herself i just think she's a remarkable woman there's so much more to be said about her um like i keep like looking through my notes and like oh yeah i want to add that and oh i want to add that but um i guess what i want the takeaway to be from this episode is in like a very like cliche way don't let anybody tell you what to do if there's something that you want like if you have a dream that seems god this is so cheesy but if you have a dream that seems out of reach or impossible or like you'll never make it um I hope you can and I mean I think luck is a part of it but I also think you have to be determined if you're going to make it um, within the entertainment industry specifically but I also hope that we can all recognize what Anna did and really the grit and um, like lack of for lack of a better word, like bravery that comes with being the first to do something. And, um, I was, it was so cool reading about her and I highly encourage you to keep learning about her and, um, learning about other Asian American Pacific Islanders, not just in the month of May, but always and, um, allow space for them and their stories. So for the rest of the month, we'll be sharing more, but I wanted to start with Anna Mae Wong because I just find that she's so remarkable. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and I love you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Model Student. Don't forget to leave a rating and review and I'll talk to you soon.